Living Corporate is brought to you by Canaries. Let me tell you about Canaries. Canaries is a tech company formed in 2018 by black founders who experienced inequities in the corporate world like most of us in the workplace. They saw typical diversity initiatives, but knew that to create systemic change, diversity, equity, and inclusion needed to be done differently. They're still ahead of the curve, focusing on the E and the I using a data-driven approach. Think Canary in the Coal Mine. The name is a nod to the canaries coal miners used to bring into mines to determine if the work environment was safe or undesirable. That's what they do for companies. They help you find the folks you need to listen to, the canaries, who will help you diagnose, measure, and attack your DEI challenges. Canaries has your back. Check them out at www.canaries.com backslash employer. That's www.kanarys.com backslash employer. Living Corporate is brought to you by Black Men in Tech. Black Men in Tech's mission is to elevate the voice of black men in the technology space by offering year-round engagement opportunities and philanthropic contributions for people and the black community, the neighborhood. In the tech industry, black men regularly struggle to access networking and career advancement opportunities. At Black Men in Tech 2021, they are partnering with their allies to create a safer space where black men can share their experiences authentically. Through this effort, Black Men in Tech hopes to share knowledge that can be used by black attendees to overcome race-based obstacles while also offering non-black allies the chance to learn how they can be more supportive of their melanated colleagues. To learn more about the Black Men in Tech conference that will be happening on June 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, check them out at blackmenintech.com. That's B-L-K-M-E-N-I-N-T-E-C-H dot com. Black Men in Tech. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and we are here. It's a Tuesday, and this Tuesday is unique in that it is the uh, one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Um, George Floyd, his murder was, sadly, y'all, for me, part of just another day here. And I, and, I, and I say that not to be dismissive of his life, but the reality is that America has constantly shown a disdain, at best, disregard for the humanity of black people. And so I remember my phone was lighting up about someone being choked to death on camera. It didn't strike me as unique until I realized a few things. One, uh, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is uh, the city where in which my father, my stepmother and my siblings uh, and my step grandmother live. Uh, they live in the suburbs of the Twin Cities area. and. Not only that, but when they started circulating pictures of George Floyd, the people that he was pictured with when he was in Houston are the same people I know. So we were one degree separated. He was murdered in a city um, where, again, like in the suburb where my parents and my family lived. Not only that, but the murderer of George Floyd lived 15 minutes away from my father. So all of it was very close to home and I was frustrated and I was angry because as sad and maybe sick as this sounds, I was priding myself in building up a certain level of callousness in my heart because 
to see these things happen over and over again is deeply traumatic and exhausting. And to experience all these things in the middle of a pandemic. But it's just, it was interesting how this moment, again, it's it's like it tore everything open and I, it almost feels like I felt a lot of trauma for the first time. I thought back about my own experiences in Minneapolis. Um, I thought back about my own experiences I'm having guns drawn and put to my head as a 14 year old. I thought back about being accused of stealing in a mall when I was just walking around. Um, I, th- I thought back, I, I did. I, the things that I thought that I had pushed deep enough away came roaring back as the degrees of separation became shorter and shorter. And so I remember this time a year ago, um, the place I was employed with um, at the time, a lot of things were happening. All of a sudden, folks cared about black folks. And we had one of those candid conversations. And I recall saying that, you know, the truth of the matter is there are black lives that are harmed here every day. There are black lives that are dismissed, undermined, disregarded every day. And I recall my job at the time and then just corporate America as a platform, a lot of performative stuff, theater, right? Between about June to, I'm going to say Thanksgiving, folks were reaching out to me at my job, asking me for things. Suddenly my opinion mattered. Folks outside of my job were reaching out to Living Corporate, asking for us to do things, oftentimes for little to nothing at all. Other times for some money, but the work that they wanted to do was just so ridiculous. Like it was, it, it rarely made sense. And I remember talking to other DEI consultants and professionals who were telling me that this was happening to them too, where their inboxes would be full of all these companies who suddenly needed to create some sort of narrative that they actually care and that they have a conscience towards the experience of um, black folks. I mean, inundated. And yet so many of them were offering to pay in exposure. This is common. Not only are black vendors typically offered pennies on the dollar compared to the white counterparts, but corporate America has historically never really, really put the dollars behind diversity and inclusion. But it was just particularly sick that even in this moment, while the requests were up, the dollars weren't. All of that to say, I look at this day and I ask myself, what's next? I still continue to ask myself, and I'm gonna continue to ask ask that, y'all. I need you to know that like that's not gonna that's not a question that's gonna go away at Living Corporate. I'm gonna continue to ask what's next because that's what we have next. The story of oppressed people is the hope for a brighter day tomorrow. Right? We we have no option but to hope. And you know, I've I've talked about this before. Right? I've come on Living Corporate. We've talked about just a look at the landscape. Like, what are, what are you gonna do? Like, what are y'all actually doing? And you know, in this span of George Ford's murder, there have been several other high-profile state-sanctioned executions of Black and Brown people. And I'm still waiting to see what radical thing one of these capitalist giants is going to do 
to mobilize systemic impact and change. And so the jury's still out on that. I can just hope. I can only hope that external forces coordinate or create enough pressure and link up with internal agents to mobilize actual change. That's where I'm at. With that being said, I'm really excited about the guest that we have today. So Dr. Janice Gassam, she is, she's incredible, right? She's a huge supporter of me, huge supporter of Living Corporate, um, has been a vocal ally and advocate for us for some years. And I'm just honored that she had the time to come on Living Corporate and talk about her book, The Pink Elephant, a practical guide to creating an anti-racist organization. We're going to talk a little bit about her book. We're going to talk about the DEI landscape. We're going to talk about her perspective on the future of this work. And um, it's just a really good dialogue. I'm excited for you all to hear it. Before we get there, though, we're going to tap in with Tristan. See you in a second. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, we're going to discuss some common mistakes job seekers make with phone screen interviews. With most jobs, before you get to an interview, you have to go through a phone screen. Phone screens are the first step of an interview process where someone from the company calls to gather more information, determine if the candidate has the minimum qualifications, and assess whether they may be a good fit for the role. This is a significant part of the process because if you don't make it through the phone screen, you won't make it to the interview with your potential boss. So let's talk about some mistakes to avoid. First, do not take the call if you're in a distracting environment. Sometimes phone screens are scheduled and some just happen randomly. When they do happen randomly, most candidates are afraid they may miss their opportunity if they don't answer. But if the company is genuinely interested in you, they will leave a message and a callback number for you to get back to them. So if you're out grocery shopping, at an event, or even in the bathroom, let the phone go to voicemail and call back when you're in a better environment. If you happen to pick up the phone because you didn't recognize the number, it's okay to let them know that you aren't in an environment where you can have this conversation at the moment and ask if you could give them a call back within a specified time frame. Next, you have to be prepared to discuss your salary expectations. People often get a little nervous about this. Just know the company is just trying to ensure that your salary expectations align with their budgets and what they're willing to pay. Believe me, you don't want to get too far in the process and realize that they can't accommodate the salary you're seeking. As always, I suggest doing some reflection and research to identify what a reasonable salary range for the position and your experience level would be. When telling them the range you settled on, be sure to leave space for you to adjust later down the line if your understanding of what the role entails changes. You could say something like, well, based on what I know about the role currently, I'm looking for $65,000 to $75,000. If my understanding of the position changes throughout the process, then that range may vary a bit. Always make sure your lowest number is the must have and your highest number is your nice to have. Lastly, make sure to ask about the next steps. Oftentimes, we get so excited that we forget to ask what the process looks like. We all know your anxiety will be on 10 after that phone screen, and a company's silence can make you a nervous wreck. So to ease some of that, ask what to expect as you move forward in the process. Sometimes there are circumstances like PTO that might delay an actual interview. Also, with many of the pandemic restrictions being lifted and vaccinations happening, you might want to ask if the next step is virtual or in person to make sure you're prepared either way. 
Phone screens set the tone for your interview process with a company. Don't forget to sound enthusiastic while you're on the line to show you're genuinely interested in the position. This tip is brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. At Living Corporate, we often talk about how we as black folks show up at work and how these corporate power structures impact how we show up. But we know when work ends, we come home, log off, and have to show up at home for our families and communities. And as a black man, I often turn to Let's Talk, bruh, for the real, honest, and healing conversations on black masculinity, mental health, and patriarchy. Let's Talk, bruh, or LTB, is a platform that creates content around black masculinity and the impact of patriarchy in black communities. In other words, Let's Talk, bruh, is having real conversations that black men need to hear and be a part of. Let's Talk, bruh, creates interactive, healing, and learning experiences with black men and male socialized folks of all sexual orientations and gender identities. Through their content and community-based programs, Let's Talk Bruh seeks to reduce patriarchal violence in our community and provide support to those most impacted by patriarchal violence, specifically black women, girls, femmes, queer, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. Tap in at letstalkbruh.com. To be clear, that's letstalkbruh.com. So brothers, what are you waiting for? Let's talk, bro. Dr. Gassam, how you doing? I'm doing wonderfully this morning. How are you, Zach? I'm doing well. Now, look, let's get going. Um, you have a whole book out. You know what I'm saying? It's in the bookstore. It's just on Amazon. Let's just talk right about it. Okay. Where did you get the name from? Yes. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to just chat about my book. So I, in my writing, I have said before that race is the pink elephant in the room. So imagine how sort of uncomfortable it is when you see a hot pink elephant walk into a room and you pretend you don't see it. And that's how people in corporate America treat race and racism. They pretend like they don't see it. We hear them saying things like they don't see color. Um, so that's really where I got the name, the pink elephant from. So then now let's talk about when you say, you know, cause you've been all living corporate, you know, we've, we've had conversations about how orgs will ask you to come in and really um, delineate or um, separate discussions around gender equity and equality with uh, racial equity and equality. Yes. You know, what has changed for you, if anything, over the past year with the murder of George Floyd and apparently a bunch of white folks coming into consciousness about the humanity of black people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's um, it's really like a full circle moment because tomorrow is actually um, the one year anniversary of the murder That's right. of George Floyd. So um, what I've seen is a more of a willingness to have these open conversations Zach, about things like anti-Blackness and white supremacy. Prior to the murder of George Floyd, when I would go into organizations, there wasn't this openness to specifically talk about the things that are going on and have been going on in this country. But now people are reaching out to me, corporate leaders are reaching out to me and saying, can you speak specifically about anti-Black racism? Can you speak specifically about white supremacy. And it's so shocking because I still remember um, when I first started consulting, 
I had companies telling me they didn't want me to talk about white privilege. So it's definitely an, uh, more of a willingness when employees come and say, we want these things to be changed. We want an employee resource group. I see more of an openness to have the discussion. Whether that leads to actual change is where I think there needs to be more work because it doesn't always lead to change just because you're having the conversation, but the conversation can be the catalyst to what can create the change, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And, you know, let me ask you this. Have you seen, because we, and again, we, this has been a, a question for several months is like, if, is this a movement or a moment or a moment or a movement? I'm curious to get your perspective, you know, a year later, I'm trying to understand as you look at this these past 12 months, do you think this has just been a season or do you do you think that there's something different about this moment? Do you see something really progressing and continuing forward? No, I absolutely think that this moment is different. Um, you know, I was cautiously optimistic about whether change would actually happen because last year, um, right after the murder of George Floyd, I was inundated with emails. I had maybe 20 inquiries in my inbox per day. And so now I don't see as many sort of inquiries in my inbox, but I do see companies still reaching out and saying, we realize that we don't have these conversations. We don't have any sort of equity and inclusion strategy. I hate to call it a strategy, but we don't have any plan for equity and inclusion. So I, I do think, and in my book, The Pink Elephant, I call this the racial revolution of 2020. I do think that this was a, an important moment in history and decades and centuries from now, when we look back at 2020, that's gonna be one of the major moments. Like when we think of the 60s, many of us may think of the civil rights movement. I think that when we think of 2020, we're gonna think about the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor. Um, unfortunately, like we're, uh, many of us will associate black trauma and black death and black pain with this year. Um, and I, I do feel like a lot of companies are realizing that they're not gonna be sustainable because they, um, they're not doing anything to make sure that the most marginalized, which are their black employees, um, feel a sense of value. So I do feel like, and maybe um, maybe I'm biased in saying this because I'm doing this work. So I do feel like um, change is happening, but I've said for a long time that I feel like progress and change has been slow and companies that aren't really fostering the most inclusive environments are not going to be sustainable because social media is our power and has, and I say our, as in the employee's power, and has equipped us with the ability to call these companies out. And they don't want to be called out. These universities don't want to be called out. These institutions, these companies. So I think they're very afraid of that. And for that reason, now they are willing to invest money and resources into folks who study these things, who e educate others on these things, because they realize we need to get better at this and we don't want to be the next, you know, there's so many companies to name, but we don't want to end up doing, yeah, we don't, we don't want to be the next XYZ company. So I do think that this moment will produce change. I just don't, honestly, Zach, a lot of these companies were built on anti-Black racism. I just wrote an article about um, anti-Blackness in academia, um, particularly at predominantly white institutions. And I, I, I struggle sometimes with understanding 
how to change a structure when the foundation is rotten without tearing the whole thing down. <laughs> and, you know, I think um, that can be a challenge because a lot of these companies and structures were built from the labor of enslaved Black people. And so how do you rectify a whole culture when that's what it was built on is something that I think a lot of us are struggling to figure out now. Because I think my goal with the work that I do is harm reduction. How do I make sure that the Black folks that are there aren't experiencing more harm? And how do we address the harm that they've already experienced at the hands of their employers? Well, you know, so to that end, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, my hope isn't about in this decade, by the time we, by the time we reach 2030, Again, Lord say the same, the world's still around, you know, it's not a ball of fire. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but but by the time we reach 2030, we'll have more authentic conversations about the fact that, you know, we're going to have to really just, a lot of these systems need to be systemically dismantled and reimagined because I don't see a path to create the type of equity and liberation that many of us want and believe should happen without really fundamentally changing and um, radically, again, reimagining just what these organizations should look like. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And yeah, so I think ideally, I would love to just burn it all down to the ground and start over. Um, but I know that that's not realistic. And, and some folks tell me, why, Janice, why are you doing this? You are not going to change 400 plus years of this. You're coming into these structures and being optimistic and being hopeful. That is not going to change. You're not going to change these, these people. And I, I can't believe that, you know, and um, Angela Davis in um, the book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. They asked her um, in an interview, um, are you optimistic? And she said, we have no choice but to be optimistic. And that's how I feel doing this work. It can be very deflating and defeating, um, but I have to believe that change can actually happen. And I do believe some companies are very open, more, more so than others. Um, and I think more, some industries are maybe more um, ripe for change than others. Um, I think in the tech industry, it's really, really challenging um, for change to occur. I don't think change is impossible though, but I think in these larger institutions and organizations, everyone is so siloed. So you, what if you change a department, you know, how do you change the entire company when everyone is in their silos in one part of the country or another? I think it can be really, really, really challenging, but I do think it is possible. Some people might, might disagree with me, but I do think change is possible in in certain environments. I think it's possible too. I think, and I've said this before, like, and I think you and I've even had this conversation either off mic or on mic, which is change is possible in these corporate contexts, but it's going to take coordination between outside grassroots organizations and internal change agents, right? Like this, I, I think this idea of everything happening that an organization can just completely change without any type of external pressures. I don't think that's true. Right. And I, and I believe we have this past year as again, as the most recent example, we've seen this several times, but this past year is the most recent example of that. Right. It was the effort of grassroots activists that facilitated, you know, living corporate getting invited to different things like it, it's this system is all connected. It's not they're not disparate at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I do think that outside pressure is what causes a lot of these companies to change. Lawsuits, <laughs> multiple lawsuits and bad press um, can be what causes a lot of these companies to change. Honestly, Zach, one thing I talk about in the book is that I do feel like there's a lack of understanding regarding history. And when we talk about equity, I don't think you can really create equitable structures if you don't understand a little bit about the history of what different marginalized groups had to endure. If, you know, there's this fallacy that meritocracy is what we should be focusing on. Everyone has the same opportunities. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps um, is what a lot of these folks say. And like um, Martin Luther King Jr. said, you can't tell a bootless man to pull himself up by his bootstraps. We don't all have the same opportunities. We didn't all start from the same place. And I think that we see this now with the backlash when it comes to critical race theory. There's a lot of conservative folks within the U.S. and outside of the U.S. that are like, um, why are we teaching our kids that America is a racist country or about the racist origins of our country? And it's like, if you don't even have an understanding of the history, the real history, you're not gonna be able to understand how to create equity because equity requires an understanding that different people and different groups of people require different accommodations. So in an environment where you're thinking everyone is equal, we're all one, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're not, so a lot of my book, I talk about the history and particularly specific events that have impacted different groups of marginalized uh, folks. So the Trail of Tears, for example, was a huge event where um, Native Americans or Indigenous Americans were forcibly removed from their land and had to walk miles and miles and miles to their new quote unquote home and how the impacts of that are still being felt. My best friend works um, in a pharmacy on a reservation in New Mexico. And she tells me about what she sees as a pharmacist. And so the, the impacts of the Trail of Tears are still being felt. Everything that was done to Black people who were in this country at this time, who built this country, are still being felt from redlining to the impacts of slavery. to It just goes on and on and on and on. And so it's like so asinine to me that anyone could even like fix their lips to say, we need to, we're all on the same level. And it's like, I don't, there's obviously a, a lack of understanding regarding history. And I feel like there has to be an understanding of history by leaders in order to understand what support systems can be put in place to better advance the most marginalized communities in the workplace. It's interesting how folks claim to love history, but anytime there's any history, uh, and, and I'll say like white Americans, right? Like, like you know, we there's certain things we say we never want to forget. Remember the Alamo, right? I remember like coming from Texas, right? Like, and even and even just even just like 17, 1776, like there are dates and things that like we really want we revel in remembering, and there are folks who are who are genuinely who get excited about history. All of a sudden. You know, we're talking about the implications of race, uh, capitalism, misogyny, and patriarchy. And all of a sudden, you know, not only are we uncomfortable, we're trying to outlaw it, right? Yeah, anything that paints America in a bad light. Because there there are those same sex of people who say, well, if you hate America, get out of the country. And it's like, I love, like James Baldwin said something, and I'm going to butcher this quote. Like, I love America, so I reserve the right to critique her. 
you know, I can love something and also critique it as well. I love America. That's why I'm here. I could live in somewhere else, but I also recognize our country needs to get better, you know? Right. hundred percent. Well, and that's what, I mean, even when you talk about like, that's, that's a relationship, right? Like if we ever, if we're in a relationship and I care about you, I'm going to tell you when I feel like you're doing something that isn't right. And that's also the right that I have as someone invested in a relationship. Uh, shout out to my wife who critiques me every day. Not <laughs> exactly. And that's like you, that doesn't mean you don't love her because you reserve the right to point out, hey, these are flaws and this is how you can get better. But there's this weird thought in this country that if you're critiquing the country, if you're like Colin Kaepernick saying, you know, I am peacefully protesting against the killing of black and brown people at alarming rates by police, it's somehow you're unpatriotic for protesting in the most peaceful of peaceful ways. So it's it's like there is this defensiveness to, you know, or there there is this push to defend our country and to label anybody that critiques our country as unpatriotic. And I think that that mindset is what is continuing to um, hold us back as a country is because we can't even have an honest conversation about our history without the fragility, without people getting offended, without all of that. So how can you, those who, what is it? Those who do not remember their history are doomed to repeat it. We don't even talk about our history. So it's like the same things happen over and over. And I myself have said, I need to study the history as well, because I've been, you know, when our previous, um, president, was in office, I was very disengaged because I just, it was better for my mental well-being to just disengage and not follow everything going on, every tweet going out. But I feel like that's how we see the same patterns over and over and over again. We see former presidents who've done things that current presidents are adopting now. So I feel like if we're better able to see the signs early and understand the history, we will be um, better equipped to intervene before things get um, to, you know, before things just get too out of hand, because there's been so many tactics that the previous administration has borrowed from, um, from different presidents, whether it was Reagan or Nixon or whomever. And I feel like having a lack of understanding, um, having a better understanding rather will help us to, you know, intervene before things get to a level where, because I think in so many of these situations, people like with Hitler, you know, I try to study the Holocaust and I try to understand like why we're at, why were so many people basically just like allowing this, how did it get to this level where this was able to happen? And I think it was a lot of people sort of saying, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's like that dog in the burning house. If you've seen that, that yes, it's, this is fine. It's, like, it's okay. It's like, and that's how I feel. It was just like, it was happening right before people's eyes and they thought it wasn't that bad. And then they look back and they were like, oh crap, it, it was that bad. You know, and I think that I don't want that to happen. And we've had a few close calls here in this country, but I don't want that to happen. And I feel like we have to keep, we can't let people, um, we can't let people silence us. And that's what they're attempting to do. No, I'm right there with you. This has been super dope. Now, Dr. Gassum, um, we talked about the fact that you got this book again, it's fire. We're going to make sure we put all the links in the show notes uh, for the book, but I want to give you space to plug it yourself. And then also um, what else you got going on? What you excited about? 
Um, so many things. So thank you again. Um, so the book is called The Pink Elephant. Um, recently, I found out um, a few weeks ago that Target actually picked it up. So Target is selling it online, um, which is amazing. Uh, as an independent author, I've had to figure things out on my own, a self-published independent author. So these small things are like big wins for me. How was that a small thing that you got picked up by Walmart? That's not small. By Target. Um, it's, it is- Oh, Target. I, I don't know. I guess I'm like, this might be like small potatoes for somebody who has a publisher. Uh, but oh, for no. me, I'm like, wow, that's, I have Google alerts on my name. So if anyone mentions me in articles or whatever, I know, and I can see it. So I had a Google alert out and I opened the Google alert and I was like, Target? And I clicked it. I was like, oh my goodness. So it was a really exciting uh, moment, but it's available on Target. Also, I sell it uh, personally through my website and through my website, I sign it and just write a little note in there. Um, so anyone who purchases it through my drjanisgassam.com website um, gets a personalized and signed copy. It's also on Amazon. And Zach, I've been dragging my feet, but I've been trying to record the audiobook for the pink elephant. Um, and in the upcoming weeks, I'm locking myself in a hotel room and I'm going to record the audiobook. So that's really exciting for me. Um, the most exciting thing I have going on, Zach, is that in July, I'm taking a month off. So I'll, I, I want to experience black joy and I just want to not be thinking about work. Um, so I think that I encourage and hope that the folks listening are doing things that bring them joy every day, because I think we're all sort of products of this capitalist system um, where we have to constantly feel like we're producing. And that's how I've been feeling a lot. And so I really want to be intentional about taking time off and just allowing, uh, just doing things I love. I haven't had a chance to read a full book in a long time. So doing more of that. So that's really exciting to me. And then just continuing to do these workshops and, and work with corporate leaders um, on their long-term plans for making Black people feel um a sense of value and for supporting black people. I'm trying to recenter my work on black people specifically. Um, and to quote the Kambahi River Collective, which is a group of black feminists, they say, when black women are free, all other groups will become free because our freedom as a collective necessitates the freedom of the most marginalized, which are which is black women. So I really try to center and focus my work around black women and black people. And um, it's exciting because I feel like um, I'm doing this for us, you know, and, and that's what really invigorates me. And I think that once black people are free and are liberated, rather, everyone in the workplace will benefit from black people being in better, uh, having better support systems and being able to advance at equal rates as our counterparts. So um, that's what I'm really, really excited and really looking forward to. All right. Well, look, uh, it's called uh, The Pink Elephant, A Practical Guide to Creating an Anti-Racist Organization. This has been Dr. Janice Gassam. Dr. Gassam, we appreciate you. We're going to have to have you back. Shout out to all the work that you do. Uh, everybody, make sure you check out the links in the show notes to get the book, to learn more about Dr. Gassam, to uh, to work with her. She leads incredible workshops, uh, incredible thought leader, uh, beast when it comes to the written content, especially on Forbes. and her weekly LinkedIn newsletter. You just need to make sure y'all get familiar. You know what I mean? This is not an ad for Dr. Gasson, but I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna gas her up, okay? Because she she gas she's half gas. I'm a, I'm gonna finish the rest, okay? So uh, make sure you check out the links in the show notes. And uh, Dr. Gasson, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Zach. Have an amazing week.
Hey, same to you. Peace. Living Corporate is brought to you by the Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network, hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards. The Leadership Range is focused on having real, raw, soulful and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out The Leadership Range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Yo, I want to thank Dr. Gassim again. Remember, the book is called The Pink Elephant, A Practical Guide to Creating an Anti-Racist Organization. Check out the link in the show notes. Check out her LinkedIn. Make sure you follow her on LinkedIn. Her newsletter is incredible. Uh, we also linked her some of her Forbes pieces. She's a phenomenal writer, phenomenal thought leader, credible consultant, speaker, educator, mentor, all those things. Like she's she's super dope. Like I can't I can't say enough great things. Until next time, y'all. Uh, this has been Zach with Living Corporate. Make sure you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you haven't. And uh, we'll catch you later. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.